Father in heaven, thank you for a wonderful meal and for the sunshine and, and fresh air and for this beautiful place. And we pray that you'll bless as we speak about some of your natural remedies and make it clear to each one what they need to know. And we thank you for Jesus' sake. Amen. Okay. This morning we talked about a number of natural remedies, including a lot of miscellaneous and a number of spirit of prophecy references, and a couple of case studies on respiratory infections. We're at Wildwood, Georgia. We have used um, natural remedies on many respiratory and pneumonia cases without the use of antibiotics. However, it takes knowledge and expertise and carefulness to do this. My husband was very sick a couple of years, well, more than that, about three years ago, with bilateral pneumonia, and we could not get an adequate sputum culture, and he was insisting he did not want to take antibiotics if possible, and I was his doctor, and I had him in our hospital at Wildwood, and I had him on oxygen because he was somewhat desaturated. He had quite a bit of fever, a high white count, and I was very concerned. Oh, well, which one? It says so. Okay, oh, I'm sorry, it was upside down. Okay, um, several years ago, my husband was very sick with bilateral pneumonia. And I was taking care of him, and I said, honey, you may well need antibiotics. Because the first day he came in, he just had it on one side. The next day, the chest x-ray showed bilateral. And he's like, no, I don't want to take antibiotics. But he's reasonable. And so I think it was by the second day I convinced him to take antibiotics. Anyway, we had him on oxygen, lots of hydrotherapy to the chest. On our pneumonia patients, we used two and three times a day hydrotherapy to the chest with what we call revulsive fomentations. And as some of you may know or may not know, Dr. John Harvey Kellogg was the pioneer of hydrotherapy in this church. And there were people in Europe about the same time, Dr. Neep and others who were working on hydrotherapeutic measures. And I brought, if you have not seen it, the two facsimile books of Dr. Kellogg's Rational Hydrotherapy, and of course he authored many, many books. But the Rational Hydrotherapy book has many wonderful treatments in it that we use to this day. And there's so many that we couldn't possibly do all of them. But we stick with a few basic good hydrotherapy treatments for respiratory infections. And that is revulsive, that means alternate hot and cold hot fomentation, two or three minutes, three or four minutes, with uh, about a half a minute of cold and then a fomentation to the back, the whole treatment, and a hot foot bath. And if a person's very, very weak, you want to make that, that first treatment very crisp and snappy. You don't want to prolong it 30, 40, 50 minutes. They want to get it, you want to get it done in about less than a half hour because you may exhaust the patient and undo the good you're trying to do. So there's a lot of judgment that needs to go into using natural remedies, and we would encourage every one of you to take a course. We need doctors at Wildwood, and we need nurses at Wildwood that can help us practice some of these natural remedies, by the way. And we are looking for some good doctors and some good nurses. If anybody's interested, you can talk to us afterwards. We have an online course right now for our six-month College of Health Evangelism that anybody can enroll in. It's for lay people, but for anybody that wants to learn some of the natural remedies as well. Echinacea. 
two or three years ago, there was some hype in the medical news media and the general news media that echinacea wasn't all it had been cracked up to be. And there is good data about echinacea. Our data shows considerable activity in antibacterial activities, selectivity in antibacterial activities. The selectivity should be considered a positive feature as it suggests that such extracts could be useful in controlling these pathogens while sparing other beneficial bacteria. And indeed, they've studied echinacea and found it to be very helpful for human pathogens such as strep pyogenes for sore throats, impetigo, haemophilus influenza for pneumonia and meningitis, legionella um, pneumophila for legionnaire's disease, and clostridium difficile, and, which has to do with pseudomembranous colitis, that terrible bug you get after certain types of um, cephalosporins, which cause this very bloody and painful diarrhea. And acne vulgaris, and perhaps others. There are many herbal combinations out there on the market, such as a mixture of echinacea, and there are a number of species of echinacea, by the way, and the purpurea is the one that has been most studied in connection with infections. Astragalus membranaceus, which is a Chinese herb, and Glyceriza glabra, which is licorice, and these, this combination activated CD4 and CD8 T cells. Well, that would be important in a disease such as HIV. The immune activation appeared greater when all three herbs were taken together. In other words, there was some synergism present. And astragalus has also been studied in connection with cardiac output. It increases cardiac output. And they actually test tested that some years ago with Swan-Ganz catheters. So it's interesting that many herbs have more than one effect, whereas you, if you extract a certain component of an herb, you don't get that synergistic effect that's built into the herb. So you want to be sure that the herb doesn't have certain components that are toxic as well as the good effects. But there are, on the other hand, herbs that you would rather use a standardized preparation, such as any digitalis um, or foxglove product, because digitalis as an herb could be lethal and kill you. I'd much rather take a potion of lenoxin or digoxin or digitoxin than a tea of foxglove, for instance. So again, there comes judgment in using herbs. Sambucol, and that's, we've been to Italy many times to the Waldensian Valleys, um, was shown, to, and it's called Sambuco in Italy, and that's actually the Latin name for it, Sambuco was shown to be effective in vitro against 10 strains of influenza virus, that is, the elderberries. In a double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized study, Sambucol reduced the duration of flu symptoms to three or four days. Well, that's important. That's less uh, pathogenicity of the flu virus, less lost work time, etc. The H1N1 inhibition activities of elderberry flavonoids compare favorably to, guess what, Tamiflu and amantadine. And amantadine was originally used for the flu, and then it was transferred over to be a drug for Parkinsonism as well, because they found it, that it had um, effects on the, the movement disorder of Parkinsonism. There were physicians in Christ's day and in the days of the apostles. Luke is called the beloved physician. He trusted the Lord to make him skillful in the application of remedies. 
and we too can do that and we realize that in a general office practice you have to learn to apply these things one at a time you can't just suddenly transfer your office into an all nature related office it's impossible but God will give you wisdom if you have the mindset that you want to learn natural remedies you can start educating your patients in one or two things that you know works that you're certain has no toxic side effects and that has been even advised us by God from the spirit of prophecy and just branch out little by little and keep studying and learning and you can learn these things we have the sanction of the Word of God for the use of remedial agencies. The God of nature directs the human agent to use natural remedies now. All these things teach us that we are to be very careful lest we receive radical ideas and impressions. We have to be careful when we use natural remedies. We can't just throw the baby out with the bathwater and just say, well, if a little bit's good, a lot's better because some herbs are toxic if you use too much of them. But just right, they're wonderful. <clears throat> the Lord will bless the physician who depends on natural methods, helping every function of the human machinery to act in its own strength, the part the Lord designed it to act in restoring itself to proper action. Restoring itself, that's a key term. Our bodies were meant to restore themselves. Our bodies are made to, it's built in that with the use of what God has told us to do, in diet, in exercise, in all of the eight natural remedies that we know about, and I like to call the herbs maybe a ninth natural remedy, um, we're geared to be healed by God's power. Those who desire to become missionaries are to hear instruction from competent physicians who will teach them how to care for the sick without the use of drugs. So if we as physicians don't know how, how can we teach those who work under us? Such lessons will be of the highest value to those who go out to labor in foreign countries, not to speak of here as well. And the simple remedies used will save many lives. How many of you heard of Dr. Marianne McNeilis? She's written a wonderful little book called God's Healing Way, and you can find it on the internet. She has been to the refugee camps of Cambodia and Laos off and on for many, many years. And she has seen miracle after miracle, and her little book has many natural remedies in simple forms, teaching lay people how to use them, charcoal poultices, hydrotherapy, etc. And the simplest of natural remedies, but in a simple way she teaches it. But as well, she teaches the profound principles of the three angels' messages and the spirit of prophecy in the same book. Look up God's Healing Way and see if you can get those books. Um, they're in many languages now. If the physician encourages a meat-eating diet to his invalid patients, then he will make a necessity for the use of drugs. So the more you teach your patients to get away from the harmful eating practices that they have, the less you will need to use in drugs. And by implication, the next reference is about sugar. From the light given me, sugar, when largely used, is more injurious than meat. So if you have to use drugs with meat, what about if they eat meat and sugar and sugar is more injurious? Then you're going to be forced to use some drugs. So you have to educate the people step by step. You can't just suddenly say, you must go out and take a hot foot bath or a hot and cold shower and uh, take some grapefruit seed extract or some echinacea for your cold and you're going to be well. We have to teach the people, little by little, 
Every opportunity, every contact we have must be a contact for good, for educating the people in our offices so that we can work away from the use of drugs. At Wildwood, we do still, unfortunately, use many drugs. Not as many as we used to, perhaps, as we've learned some things, but we still have to because everybody comes to us with a different package of drugs. In our, in our lifestyle center, sometimes people come with a package of, they're taking 20 or 30 things that have been prescribed for them, or 15 or 20. And I don't try to cold turkey them off of drugs. We substitute and we say, now this will help you with this, but in the meantime, you continue your medication. And after a few days when you've been on the diet and the exercise program, then maybe we can cut off something. Because we get many, many people coming and saying, I want off all my drugs in an 11-day program or 18-day program, preposterous. No, they can't handle that. Their physiology can't handle that, and we don't expect it. But with God's help, we do see miracles, and we see them come down partially off their drugs while they're there because they've learned some better habits. And I also judge by how their response is, how their motivation is, before I will tackle cutting down their drugs very much. I may cut them down a little step, and I'll say, when you go home, and if you continue to practice these things, then you ask your doctor in a few weeks or a few months if you can cut it down another step. This gives their doctor something to do and doesn't make their doctor upset if they go home and crash because we suddenly cut off everything. So we try to be reasonable. Make these changes cautiously. Treat them in a manner not calculated to discuss and prejudice them, those whom we would teach and help. When persons who have suffered much from disease are relieved by an intelligent system of treatment consisting of baths, healthful diet, proper periods of rest and exercise, and the beneficial effects of pure air, that sounds like Ministry of Healing 127, the eight natural remedies, they are often led to conclude that those who successfully treat them are right in matters of religious faith or at least cannot greatly err from the truth. So there's your evangelism included in your office practice. If you can teach them little by little, a step at a time here and there, they'll eventually come to respect what we believe, many of them. The number of subjects suffering abdominal pain or discomfort as well as severity of abdominal pain was significantly reduced in irritable bowel syndrome by the use of enteric coated delayed release peppermint oil. And even a little peppermint tea can help. Um, or a drop of essential peppermint oil into a cup of hot water sometimes can help the gas pains. Also, fennel, anise, and peppermint tea is very good for irritable, irritable bowel syndrome symptoms. <clears throat> irritable bowel syndrome often responds to probiotics such as Lactobacillus acidophilus and Saccharomyces boulardii. And inflammatory bowel disease, which is your Crohn's and your ulcerative colitis, the usage of probiotics for maintenance of remission is recommended in the updated guideline for diagnosis and therapy of ulcerative colitis by the German Society of Digestive and Metabolic Disease and the Competence Network of IBD. That's good to know. Um, the emerging field of psychoneuroimmunology is revealing neuronal connections between the brain and the enteric nervous system, or the gut, the bowels, and in turn with immune and inflammatory cells in the lamina propria. A lot of physiology involved in these diseases. An herbal combination offered therapeutic benefits, including downregulation of coxes, um, tumor necrosis factor, interleukins, and um, 
these reactive oxygen species, leukotrienes, prostaglandin production, et cetera, in inflammatory bowel disease. There has been quite a bit of study about dairy products exacerbating inflammatory bowel disease, and some people say just restrict consumption. Several years ago, a veterinary journal came across my desk, I've never seen it before or since, and it was stating that this Para, um, this uh, paratuberculosis or bovine tuberculosis is often in pasteurized milk that comes through the markets already pasteurized but hasn't killed the bovine tuberculosis and they were implicating this in the veterinary magazine as a cause of Crohn's disease and there's quite a bit of, bit of study been put into this that there is a relationship between the bovine tuberculosis and Crohn's disease in humans we had a young we had a gentleman about a year and a half ago, 63-year-old white male, 179 pounds, diagnosed with severe ulcerative colitis. He was my lifestyle guest, and he also had been told by recent colonoscopy that he had such severe dysplasia or precancerous changes that he must have a colectomy, remove his whole colon. And a few months later, he had a repeat colonoscopy and there was one inflamed polyp removed, and it was benign. And then a few months after that, in April, from December to April, he wrote me a letter, and he said, since I was a patient at the center, I've had two colonoscopies. Both have shown no evidence of dysplasia. We thank the Lord for that. Now, what in the world did we do for it? Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, okay, we used a number of things for him, and that was, um, we used licorice, a tea of licorice, papaya, myrrh, chamomile, and calendula. Licorice, papaya, myrrh, chamomile, and calendula. And a disclaimer for licorice is do not use licorice in patients that are hypertensive. It will tend to retain water. Even in a normal tensive person, you have to be careful, C can cause ankle edema, and can raise the blood pressure. Licorice, papaya, myrrh, chamomile, and calendula. Three tablespoons to a quart, steep it 20 minutes, quart of boiling water, steep it 20 minutes, three or four cups daily. Also, slippery elm tea, two tablespoons to a quart, just blend it in hot water, and three or four cups a day of that. So we have them drink those teas instead of water, and then aloe vera as water instead of uh, water. And then we also gave him hydrotherapy to his abdomen, twice, usually once a day in his case, the revulsive hot and cold to his abdomen. We gave him bromelain, three tablets, three times a day. Bromelain has been used in gastroenterology and sports medicine disorders for quite some time. It's made from pineapple, it's an enzyme from pineapple, and it reduces inflammation. And the bromelain is very effective in inflammatory bowel disease sometimes. We gave him vitamin D2 because his uh, vitamin D level was low, and B12 because his B12 was low. And um, he stayed on his acicol, which is for the inflammatory bowel disease, and the sulindac, etc. Uh, we also gave him fresh beet and green juice one hour before lunch, two glasses of carrot juice with organic carrots at supper time, and four ounces of pomegranate concentrate that we talked about this morning, blended with one cup of raspberry at supper time, to help prevent cancer because he had precancerous changes. And we talked about the elagic acid in the raspberry and pomegranate to help block DNA replication. And um, 
gave him some blackstrap molasses because he was anemic, that's rich in iron. And we squeezed the juice of two lemons daily and gave him the pulp and some of the white part for bioflavonoids and put this all in a, in a quart of water and had him drink it as well. So he was getting about three or four quarts of liquid a day. But with God's blessing, in about three months, he had a colonoscopy that shows the dysplasia was reversed. So we have seen some miracles with things like this, and we thank the Lord. In diarrhea, Saccharomyces boulardii is significantly effective for the prevention of antibiotic-associated diarrhea and prevention of traveler's diarrhea. Traveler's diarrhea also responds usually, Montezuma's revenge, to charcoal. Take a tablespoon of charcoal after each loose stool, and after three or four or five stools, don't need any more usually, and if you take any more, you're going to get a bowel obstruction because charcoal just stops it. But it is wonderful to carry charcoal with you wherever you go, particularly the powder. It's absorbed rapidly. You put a tablespoon in a glass of water and just down it, and it works very well for traveler's diarrhea. But so do the, this particular, um, does this particular probiotic. Probiotics may reduce the duration of symptoms in adults and children with infectious diarrhea by 17 to 30 hours in one uh, journal, Al Alternative and Complementary Therapy, from 2010. Multiple studies in developing countries found that zinc supplementation may reduce the severity and duration of diarrhea in children, especially malnourished children with low zinc levels. And this was by Ellen White. This is a picture of the sanitarium in Dansville, New York, where she took her husband, James, for three months when he was basically very sick and had a nervous breakdown and not physically well either. She said, we had confidence in the use of water as one of God's appointed remedies. Dr. Troll and Drs. Troll and Jackson operated this sanitarium very successfully uh, for many, many years in Dansville, New York where he could rest and where we could have the scare, care of those well-skilled as hydropathic physicians, meaning they used a lot of water treatments. However, after a while she took him out of there because they also used some things that weren't God's remedies and they were into a lot of um, card playing and other things that created a very secular atmosphere that she didn't like. Hydrotherapy. From the Spirit of Prophecy, bathing. Here are some benefits of hydrotherapy, the simplest being a simple bath. The next simplest being a hot and cold shower in the morning when you get up. It's so invigorating. The simplest hot and cold shower you can take is one change. Take a nice hot shower for a bath and rinse off with cold water. You can get up feeling exhausted because you got to bed too late the night before and that quick cold after a hot shower just refreshes you. And for if I get a cold, then I take three or four changes of hot and cold. That's the simplest hot and cold treatment you can take. Bathing makes the muscles more flexible, soothes the nerves, promotes perspiration, quickens the circulation, acts beneficially on the kidneys and urinary organs. And I would encourage you, every one of you to get a course in hydrotherapy because you can help your neighbors, your friends. And someone asked me, Brother Barton asked me before the class this afternoon, he said, well, when, when do you know how to use natural remedies on your friends and neighbors and family? It takes good judgment. You have to pray. Use the simple things God's given us first. Don't take too long, if they're not responding, get medical help. Dr. Kellogg said, while water is recognized as without doubt one of the most valuable of all natural agencies, the writer has never permitted himself to be classed with those enthusiasts who place their trust in it as an exclusive measure. 
And what he's basically saying is that we need a combination of natural remedies to help people. And more so if we have to give drugs. If we give antibiotics, if we give other drugs, they still need the natural remedies. And I've had patients come to me and say, well, if I get antibiotics, I can't use any of these other things. No, no, no. You need it more than ever. Because the antibiotics are just going to kill the germs, whereas the natural remedies are going to boost the immune system and help you fight the rest of it off and prevent more. There is no other remedy. This is by Dr. Kellogg in his book, Rational Hydrotherapy, over there on the table. There is no other remedy by which the movements of the blood and the blood supply, that's called rheology, both general and local, and in fact every form of viral, vital activity may be so readily controlled as by hydriatic or water applications. Postoperative hydrotherapy, just a couple of illustrations. At Wildwood, we used hydrotherapy when we were doing a lot of surgery there back in the 70s and early 80s. We used post-op hydrotherapy for many, many patients, almost invariably, even for major surgery. Sits bath, BID, status post-closed lateral sphincterotomy. Patients from the control group experience significant anal burning compared with patients from the sits bath. In other words, the control group didn't get any hydrotherapy. They just had some creams or ointments, etc. But the ones that got the sits baths felt so much better from the World Journal of Surgery. In hip replacements, statistical analysis showed that um, a certain subscale called WOMAC, a, a way of grading how they were, were significantly lower for all geriatric total hip arthroplasty patients treated with hydrotherapy, and this is just days after surgery. The benefits at discharge still remained after six months. Peak expiratory flow um, and number of lymphocytes significantly increased during hydrotherapeutic applications according to NEEP, and this was long, long ago. Um, a pioneer in hydrotherapy in Europe, administered to COPD patients, and also the expression of interferon gamma increased. There's tremendous benefits to increasing the immune parameters of our body. Um, Dr. Abbott, Dr. George Abbott, who uh, was president of Loma Linda University for a while, Dr. Kellogg, and um, uh, Dr. Moore Peterson, these were pioneers in the field in the Seventh-day Adventist Church as well. If you can get some of those old books by Abbott and Peterson and Kellogg, get them and study them and renew the knowledge of hydrotherapy in our church. Cold stimuli such as those applied in NEEP hydrotherapy appear to have moderate effects in alleviation of menopausal symptoms. This is from the European Journal of Integrative Medicine in 2008. And then, just a picture of different ways to get hydrotherapy. Uh, walking on a treadmill in a whirlpool setting. Um, and of course, there's whirlpools where you can swim against a current and get exercise and swim several miles in a tiny little pool. There's fomentations, there's saunas, there's steam baths. There's so many ways to apply water treatments. Dr. Kellogg used it for all these things, contusions, fractures, dislocations, sprains, Potts disease, which is tuberculosis of the bones, particularly the vertebra, scoliosis. Now, how, I don't think you could cure scoliosis, but pain in scoliosis. Uterine displacements, I'm not quite sure how he used it for that. Abdominal surgery, it's wonderful post-op. I personally have had experience with several hundred patients with post-op abdominal surgery using hot fomentations. The first, um, three or four days, 
The first 24 hours we use ice, and then after that we start using a hot fomentation PRN and twice or three times a day revulsive fomentations, not the whole big treatment, but just to the abdomen over the side of the incision. Gives wonderful relief from pain and they actually require much less pain medication post-op. Surgical shock, anesthesia, hemorrhage, and surgical fever long before the days of antibiotics. Mrs. White speaks in three manuscript releases about a horse named Parson who was very sick. We feared he would die. We doctored him as well as we could, putting hot flannel blankets around him. He was relieved after several applications. We learned hydrotherapy is for animals as well as for human beings. And they actually have horse hydrotherapy tanks. And in the United Kingdom, in England, they have uh, places where people can go in and get the hydrotherapy for their, their uh, horse patients, their horsey patients, um, just order it themselves. I need a whirlpool for my horse. He's got a lame leg. And there's places for doggy hydrotherapy. And they exercise these dogs, and they get better. There's a world-famous place in Lackland Air Force Base in Texas, a $13 million hospital that was established just a few years ago. They have intensive care, operating rooms, CAT scans, MRIs, you name it, the whole thing. And a big hydrotherapy department because these are military working dogs that they're treating. And they use a lot of hydrotherapy and rehab techniques to get these dogs working again. And it works. It takes time and effort to do simple remedies. Natural means used in accordance with God's will bring about supernatural results. We ask for a miracle and the Lord directs the mind to some simple remedy. Two selected messages, 346. I want you to say this with me. This is a key reference for these two lectures. Natural means used in accordance with God's will bring about supernatural results. We ask for a miracle and the Lord directs the mind to some simple remedy. Let's say it once more. Natural means used in accordance with God's will bring about supernatural results. We ask for a miracle, and the Lord directs the mind to some simple remedy. 2SM346. Don't forget that one. It might come in handy someday. Charcoal. It's not a cure-all, but it's very effective when used judiciously. It's indicated for inflammation, insect bites and stings, reptile bites. Be careful, you can get a bowel obstruction with it if you get too much. Or if you put it directly on open wounds, you can tattoo the wound and leave a permanent stain. And you don't want that. You can also aspirate the charcoal dust. Mrs. White said the most severe inflammation of the eyes will be relieved by a poultice of charcoal. Put in a bag and dipped in hot or cold water as will best suit the case. This works like a charm. I expect you will laugh at this, but if I could give this remedy some outlandish name that no one knew but myself, it would have greater influence. And it's been shown that charcoal made from eucalyptus or coconut trees, both of those, I believe, are usually the best kind of charcoal to use. And I'm not sure we can always determine where it came from, um, but it seems to be more effective. And you've probably heard that about a half-inch cube of charcoal has the equivalent surface area for adsorption, not absorption, adsorption of a football field, if it were spread out. A football field, that's big. Tremendous adsorption qualities. And 
there's a number of references. We have a little compilation on charcoal at our bookstore at Wildwood uh, from the Spirit of Prophecy. My mother, Mrs. White says, had told me that snake bites and the sting of reptiles and poisonous insects could often be rendered harmless by the use of charcoal poultices. Take charcoal wherever you go. And we have an exciting new product that we're marketing at Wildwood made by some Korean folks in Korea, and they're being made at Andrews University now. And these are, and we have some for sale over at our booth, at the Wildwood booth. And they can be cut into little tiny pieces just to fit just the size of the area you want. And these peel off very nicely, just like that, and you can put it directly on the skin. It's so neat. But you don't want to forget how to make charcoal poultices. If you don't know how to make them and you can't get commercial products someday, you're going to be in trouble. You can take charcoal from a fireplace and make a poultice. And I've done that in Italy where somebody got a bee sting and we immediately went to some person's house down the road and got some charcoal out of their fireplace and ground it up real quick and put it on the bee sting directly, wet it and put it directly on and the pain went away almost instantly. So, but the most effective charcoal is the activated charcoal that's actually been somehow activated to work better. It's very fine uh, powder. Just a few weeks ago, we were on a campus campout out near the Smoky Mountain National Park with a number of our students. There were about 60 or 70 people on the campout, and I just happened to be along. And Vaughn, our administrator back there, Vaughn Sparrow, um, came up to me and said, we were on a walk off the grounds of the campground, and he said, come quick, and he took me in the car. Somebody's been stung with some yellow jackets, and it turns out that one of our 24-year-old students, Hispanic female, had been on a hike up the river with a number of our young people, and some of the men had gone up the riverbank, getting to the bridge to go back to the camp, and they had triggered a yellow jacket nest and they did not realize that these girls behind were going to go right into it. And a couple of them got stuck. Five people got stung as a result of this. And, but each of the other people just got two or three stings, and they were fine. But this girl, Rebecca, got into this yellow jacket's nest just as they were just like swarming, and they went all over her. We really don't know how many stings she got but they were all over her hair and she had ponytails and she probably got 10 to 20 stings in her head and she got many on her body and Sherry my secretary they were still near the river and Sherry said fall back into the water she was right behind her and Sherry got one sting and so Rebecca fell back into the water it was only just a little trickle it wasn't that deep a couple feet deep maybe she got in the cold water and the yellow jackets left her but Sherry noticed that she quickly was going unconscious. And she went into anaphylactic shock, just like that. And Sherry hollered to the men that were already up at the bridge and said, get a car and get some charcoal quick. And so somebody went quickly to the camp, which was there, and somebody else came back and helped Sherry. They literally helped lift her. She was just like this. Her head was falling. She, was, she couldn't walk. They literally picked her up and carried her up the bank. And the car came quickly, and they they got some charcoal water and they got her to drink some charcoal water and they had some charcoal patches. They didn't have time to put that on. While they were waiting for the car, Sherry put some mud. They got some mud and just put that on, started putting that on the stings and some crushed leaves. Anyway, they got her up to the car. About the time they unloaded her, Vaughn got me and we all got there together. 
to our trailer where we were. They lifted her onto the ground. She was on the ground on a tarp, and we put her head in charcoal water immediately. We were a half hour from the nearest medical facility down a steep mountain. And unfortunately, we didn't have an EpiPen kit, and we should have had, now we do, in our campus medical kit. And I went in the camper and got a blood pressure cuff and took her blood pressure, and her first blood pressure was zero over zero. And she was barely responsive, but she got laying down flat, and that brought her blood pressure up. And they were raising her legs to put these charcoal patches all over the place. They did have these. And within just a few minutes, her blood pressure started coming back up to, one, to 80 to 90 to 110, and that stabilized. And we gave her more charcoal to drink and more charcoal to drink. We put her head in thick charcoal water, and we put these patches all over the place and kept her on the ground for about an hour and a half. And with the Lord's blessing, she did okay. And we thanked the Lord for that. It was a miracle because she could have died right there, and we knew that. I almost had them put her back in the car and take her down the mountain. But we had nothing other than, other than charcoal and prayer to, to work with. And I don't recommend that you not go on a, that you go on a camp out without EpiPen. No, but no one had a, a way of knowing that she was going to be so allergic to 20 or 30 stings. But we, we just thanked the Lord. We believe it was the charcoal and God's supernatural power that, that saved her life because she could have died. We have come to believe that the traditional approach to the cure of diabetes, now we're going to do a whole little section on diabetes, um, and other chronic disease may actually promote noncompliance. Interesting statement. Insulin therapy is the oldest available diabetes treatment and still by far the most effective agent when adequately dosed. And this is from an expert review of cardiovascular therapy in 2010. And we know that insulin as a primary modality for diabetes type 2 is becoming more and more prevalent. And the old line therapies are less prevalent. Yet surprisingly, the most commonly applied treatment paradigm involves a stepwise addition of single hypoglycemic agents triggered by the presence of clinically significant and persistent hyperglycemia. We call this a treat-to-failure approach from the same journal. Treat-to-failure. Nice thought. The American Diabetes Association consensus recommends the early use of insulin, while commonly used agents such as thiazolipine lidindiones and sulfonylureas are considered second line. That hasn't been true for many years. It's, the thought is switching. And at Wildwood, for a number of years, we've been making insulin first line therapy because we see such better results with it. And we get many diabetic, diabetics at Wildwood, we put them on two meals a day, most of them, rather than five or six meals a day. Most of them are obese, a few of them are not. And we see almost miracles in 11 or 18 days with diabetics. Their blood sugars turn right around, and then they become normal glycemic after a few days, usually, and judiciously use the insulin. A few people are resistant to insulin mentally. They don't want it. They're scared of it. So we let them continue with the regular pills, but we educate them in diet. And they, too, turn around, but we prefer to use the insulin. Patient concerns regarding insulin use, hypoglycemia. They've also heard that it's going to make you go blind. Well, we have in our eyes a certain amount of natural sugar that is 
changed as the sugars come as the blood sugar comes down the eyes change that sorbitol in the eye lens changes the concentration does and so they do temporarily get blurry when they get on insulin and get better blood sugar control but it gets better their vision gets better actually weight gain with lifestyle interventions will achieve sustained weight control in clinical trials in individuals with type 2 low fat vegan diets this is from nutritional review 2009 improved glycemic control to a greater extent than conventional diabetes diets. We're glad that somebody's finally admitting that. We at Weimar and Uchi Pines and Wildwood and a few other places and McDougall, et cetera, have known this for many years now. Long-term adherence, 17 years, to a diet that included at least weekly meat intake was associated with a 74% increase in odds of diabetes relative to long-term adherence to a vegetarian diet, zero meat intake. So every bit of meat increases your risk of diabetes as well as colon cancer, which Harvard showed several years ago, and many other things. Reduction of the consumption of processed meat may help prevent the global epidemic of type 2 diabetes. British Journal of Nutrition, 2010. Um, medical Hypotheses, 2002, back eight years ago. A low-fat, whole-food, vegan diet coupled with daily walking exercise can lead to rapid remission of neuropathic pain in individuals who experience neuropathy from type 2. We've seen it, Wildwood. Weimar has seen it. Uchi Pines has seen it that if you get people on a low-fat vegan diet and they have bad neuropathy, in, usually in 18 days, most people, their neuropathy will be 50 to 100% gone or well on its way to being gone. And also we use inositol powder, like a quarter of a teaspoon two or three times a day, and alpha-lipoic acid, like one capsule or two capsules two or three times a day. Those also seem to help in neuropathy. The low-fat vegan diet, the exercise program, walking right after a meal lowers blood sugar just like another shot of insulin. And we use hydrotherapy treatments as well for some of these people. Mild, hot and cold leg baths, never over 102 degrees for a leg bath if you have neuropathy because you can burn and not know it. But we use a mild contrast, cool and warm, cool and warm. And we see miracles with neuropathy and they're so thrilled. Diabetes, punicic acid. There's pomegranates again. Punicic acid from pomegranates, particularly, and bitter melon and bitter gourd, decreased fasting plasma glucose concentrations, improved the glucose normalizing ability, and suppressed inflammation in the skeletal muscles and adipose tissues. So that's good news. So pomegranates are coming into play. They've been shown to help decrease prostate cancer. They have been shown to be high in ellagic acid to help block DNA replication in cancer. And now they help blood sugar. And also a study in Israel showed that pomegranates help lower cholesterol. A concentrated pomegranate juice helps lower cholesterol. And Dr. Jeff Gates proved that several years ago on himself, lowered his own cholesterol with a very potent pomegranate juice concentrate. So pomegranates are a hot topic in nutrition and not commonly used. Whole grains and nuts. Whole grain intake is associated with reduced all-cause and cardiovascular disease-specific mortality in diabetic women from the Harvard School of Public Health from Circulation 2010. Regular consumption of nuts, we know where that came from, Loma Linda University from Dr. Sabate's studies, is associated with a 44% lower risk of cardiovascular disease and improved lipid profile in type 2 women. Good news. 
and legumes. Over 41 studies show that legumes improve glucose levels in both diabetic and non-diabetic individuals. Consumption of soy protein reduced um, urinary urea nitrogen, proteinuria, blood sodium, and serum phosphorus compared with animal protein. And several years ago, there was a second congress of about soy products in Belgium, Brussels, Belgium, and they proved that soy products improve glomerular filtration rate in diabetics. So actually kidney function is um, improved in diabetes with soy products. Diabetes and magnesium. Oral magnesium supplementation with magnesium chloride significantly reduces systolic and diastolic blood pressure. And in diabetic hypertensive adults with low magnesium levels, now, magnesium sometimes needs to be measured as a red blood cell magnesium. That will show, you may order a serum magnesium and it may be normal, but if you get a red blood cell magnesium, it may be low. And um, that's quite different. Exercise, even slow post-meal walking can reduce blood glucose response to a carbohydrate-rich meal. And we insist on that with all of our diabetics. The minute you finish eating, get up and go walking outdoors. Exercise improves endothelial dysfunction independently of glycemic control and insulin sensitivity. Sleep, partial sleep deprivation. This applies to all of us, whether we're diabetics or not. During only a single night induces insulin resistance. And we know that insulin resistance is a broad spectrum of not just diabetes, but atherosclerosis, elevated cholesterol, hypertension, obesity. It's a whole spectrum of things that involves insulin resistance. But sleep deprivation for one night can induce insulin resistance in multiple metabolic pathways in healthy subjects and lead to some of this um, atherosclerosis, diabetes um, spectrum of diseases. Autonomic nervous system activity, pancreatic beta cell function is influenced by autonomic nervous system activity. In other words, fight or flight, if your autonomic nervous system is activated all the time, all the time, more adrenaline, more adrenaline, that's going to activate blood sugar control for the worse, not for the better. As opposed to parasympathetic, fight or flight with ANS, Parasympathetic is rest and digest, rest and digest. And so you get a lower activity. But we need the balance of both. Fenugreek has been studied quite a bit, and we use it as fenugreek seeds that are ground up and put in a tea, or as capsules that they take, maybe two capsules twice a day or something. It's been shown to be used as an adjuvant in the control of type 2 diabetes, helps lower blood sugar. And it's also anti-inflammatory. We use fenugreek as well for cough and colds and bowel problems like inflammatory bowel disease in combinations of teas that are soothing along with slippery elm and papaya and licorice and so on. Fenugreek is a wonderful anti-inflammatory agent as well as it helps low, lower blood sugar. Gymnema sylvestre has been used for some years to lower blood sugar. Dihydroxygymnemic triacetate, the compound from gymneba, Gymnema sylvestre possessed hypoglycemic and hypolipidemic activity in long-term treatment, and hence it could be used as a drug for treating diabetes. I wouldn't say a drug, I'd say an herb. And that's from the Journal of Ethnopharmacology in 2009. We've tried to select references that are up-to-date from reputable journals, showing that the science behind many of these things is very valid. 
Dr. Kellogg, God has given you favor with the medical fraternity and he would have you hold that favor, says Mrs. White. But in no case are you to stand as do the physicians of the world to exalt allopathy above every other practice and call all other methods quackery and error. For from the beginning to the present time, the results of allopathy have made a most objectionable showing. <clears throat> this is interesting. Just in September 2010, the FDA will significantly restrict the use of rosiglitazone. And I've been to continuing education meeting after continuing education meeting where rosiglitazone is promoted, Avandia, Avandamet, et cetera, in response to data suggesting an elevated risk of cardiovascular events. And the European Medicines Agency in September 26 recommended the suspension of marketing authorizations for rosiglitazone containing medications in Europe. How about that for up-to-date data? There's, here's a case study, a couple of case studies on diabetes. 70-year-old Caucasian male, 173 pounds. He came into the clinic, outpatient clinic, complaining that his knee hurt really bad. It was very, very sore, and he'd been out mowing the lawn and doing yard work a couple days prior. And his, he was so red and swollen, and he said, I think I've had some gout in my feet, too. And he just returned from mission service overseas. And I looked at him, and he was red and hot, and I said, does he have gout or cellulitis? And I thought, I better check his blood sugar and his hemoglobin A1C, and his hemoglobin A1C was eight and a half. And we did an MRI of the right knee, and he had an 80% tear of the quadriceps tendon. He'd injured it. 20% of the fibers were intact. I got him to an orthopedist right away. We admitted him to our hospital for several days to get his blood sugar under control. And then got him to an orthopedist. He had the surgery. They removed extensive uric acid crystals from the affected knee. It was a complicated case, and the Lord just blessed. And then he came back after surgery, and we gave him hydrotherapy to the knee, continued controlling his blood sugars post-op, and he did very well. On, this, was, um, this was back in October of last year. In January of this year, his hemoglobin A1C was down from 8.5 to 5.2, and it took extensive diabetic education in the hospital to convince him that he had to have insulin and change his diet and work toward a vegan diet because he was not a vegan. He was still very much lacto-ovo, using a lot of cheese and animal products. But barely three months after being 8.5, he'd lost 14 pounds. He was walking without a walker and looking great and convinced now that insulin was the way to go. And he was feeling good and had had physical therapy, and returned to the mission field. 61-year-old Caucasian male, non-insulin dependent diabetes, hypercholesterolemia, sleep apnea, neuropathy in both lower extremities and the right hand by physical exam. His triglycerides were off the wall, 340, cholesterol 253, HDL a little bit low, 39, LDL quite high, 146. His ratio was really high. Cholesterol over HDL, 6.5, should be less than 5. Fasting glucose was 181, and he was in our lifestyle program. Bilirubin was a little bit high, but that was probably um, Gilbert's syndrome, congenital thing. His hemoglobin A1C was 8.4, 24-hour urine for creatinine clearance and total protein and microalbumin was normal. C-peptide was high, and I encouraged him. I said, look, you got the potential to get your sugars under control. You got some circulating insulin in your body. So you, you really can get this done. And I wanted him to go on insulin. He wouldn't do it. No, nope, I'm going to do it all by myself. I'm not going to go on insulin. 
Well, I said, okay, we'll work with you, but I'm really not convinced this is the way to go. With God's blessing, he persisted and he persisted. And over the next several months, he did our 18-day program. Then he went home to Virginia. He continued to lose weight. He lost over 50 pounds. His triglycerides dropped from 340 to 148 to 126 to 104. Total cholesterol, 253 to 180 to 161. Went back up a little bit. LDL, 146, 116, 103, back up a little bit. But he stayed with a vegan diet, and that's part of the secret. Lacto-ovo doesn't cut it with diabetes. They do not change their numbers dramatically, and their disease progresses. The neuropathy, the blood vessel disorders of atherosclerosis and uh, potential for cardiovascular disease and so on progresses on lacto-ovo. LDL went down, the risk ratio went down, fasting blood sugar went down to a normal of 100, hemoglobin A1C went down to 5.2. And he did it, not by himself, but with God's help. He's a very staunch Baptist man. He came back to our medical seminar last October, gave his testimony. He says, now I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist, you folks, but I really do believe in this program. <laughs> and he really did, and he's staying with it. It's about a year later, year and a half later now. And we trust that you and your patients will greatly benefit from the complementary treatments God has given us. And we pray that it will be helpful to you to think about what we've talked about and try to start putting a few things into practice. We've tried to cover, cover several areas in GI. We purposely didn't touch cancer. That's a huge topic. And we did, well, we touched it a little bit with pomegranate and elagic acid and so on. And we know that a vegan diet, I will touch cancer right here. Harvard, you, you can quote this to all your patients. Harvard University did a study several years ago. Here's a graph. Prostate cancer. Men that use a lot of milk, 40% increased risk. Men that use a lot of meat, 60% increased risk. Men that use a lot of milk and meat, 200% increased risk. Prostate cancer. Loma Linda did a study showing prostate cancer, 70% decreased risk with soy. And I'm not sure if that was totally on a vegan diet or not. I don't remember that statistic. But we know that there's research out there proving that God's remedies work. And the more we study into it, the more he can bless us. And I just pray that will be the case with all of you. And if you have any questions, I'm happy to try to answer them. But we're not the experts on everything. But he will give each of you wisdom as you study to know his will. Thank you. This media was produced by Audioverse for Amen, Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. If you would like to learn more about Amen, please visit www. AmenSDA.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.